When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. And today really is all about the he said, she said bullshit, because we are doing a Limp Bizkit episode because the world is talking about Limp Bizkit. It is 2021, and there are debates about Limp Bizkit. People are caring about Limp Bizkit. Basically, if we had to trace why there's a subject. There's a new documentary about Woodstock 99 out uh, that I actually have not watched because I just feel too close to it. So I just can't deal with it. But shout out to uh, my friend Stephen Hyden, who uh, was a consultant on that. I haven't watched it, but you know, it got people talking. The, the producers of Woodstock, I think, again, took the opportunity to basically blame the, everything that happened at Woodstock 99 on Fred Durst, which is absurd. Although Rob and I will go on to disagree about what culpability Fred may have had for the stuff that happened during his own set. But blaming the riots on him, blaming everything on him is ridiculous. He, he wasn't even the same day as the riots. It's, it's preposterous. But so people were talking about that. And then they also played at Lollapalooza and Fred wore like a wig and did a dad dance. And so that got attention. And basically in this sort of horrible as it is, this sort of circle of music people on Twitter, music writers, there's been a debate over sort of the essential worth of Limp Bizkit. And I find the debate kind of silly. Unfortunately, my default reaction to most debates is like, I hate both sides of this. And that, that is where I am. But uh, maybe, Brittany, what do you think of this debate? And I know you're just kind of a Limp Bizkit fan. Like, you're not even kind lifelong. of... Lifelong. Yeah, <laughs> lifelong. Since birth. <laughs> uh, so... You know, how, how do you see all this? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. As with most of these types of things, it's like, it's it's music. It's meant to be enjoyed. New metal is silly at best. Like, the best kind of new metal is kind of silly. But they're, you know, obviously, I'm not going to go into, like, the trenches of new metal. You know, the more political side of it, things like that. But, like, Limp Bizkit was a silly band. They were just kind of funny. They were bro-y. They were weird. They were kind of, like, the... um you know, just like another side of MTV happening. They were a band that I grew up seeing constantly alongside the artists that I was first loving, like NSYNC and Britney Spears on TRL and on MTV. They were just a part of that world. And I do think there is sort of like this difference for like, if you were a kid watching that, they were just like a funny band. And I think if you were like covering it, it's just like, what, what the hell is this? But yeah, to me, like, they represented for a lot of, like, my friends, like, older siblings. Like, they were the cool band that older kids listened to. People would wear, like, Limp Bizkit shirts on, like, the, you know, days that we could dress down. Because I went to Catholic school, so it was, like, very rare. And so you'd see people, like, with Limp Bizkit shirts. And it's, like, that's cool. Like, that's, like, fun. That's, like, the older kid sign that they had good taste in music. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it's just kind of weird to suddenly make it this, like, weird, serious thing and... Also to in blaming musicians and blaming a style of music on, this is, I, I watched the Woodstock 99 documentary, like blaming like toxic white masculinity 
at its core on like just silly bands who are just doing their best to perform. Again, I was not there in the trenches, but like it was just bands performing, like doing what they could in kind of like this like sea of nonsense and just again, like white men in a giant crowd being white men in a giant crowd, like is problematic on many levels. And I think kind of essentially a really messy sort of way of looking at those things. Sure. And there's a lot to unpack there. Rob, take us back to 98-99 and what you remember of your perception of Limp Bizkit as they they came onto the scene, emerged out of that giant toilet bowl and conquered the culture. There were a lot of new metal bands at that time. A lot of them were a lot more serious-minded than uh, Limp Bizkit, Corn for one. Brittany, I'm, I'm kind of curious about your corn journey versus your Limp Bizkit journey. Like, we're- oh, I loved corn. I mean, it was like the corn. Um, I remember there was like around Evanescence era is when I started to get into corn because Amy Lee appeared in the Unplugged. She did the acoustic freak on a leash with them. Very good. One of my favorite <laughs> versions of the song. So that's when I got really into corn. I would say like Limp Bizkit was the first of the new metal bands I liked because they were just so popular. They were like all over the place but like around like 2002 i started getting to like system of a down and corn and deftones and like a slew of others it's interesting because corn is sort of the the perception of corn and i would include myself in this is that they were much more musically valid than limp biscuit that they were actually doing something genuinely musically interesting and new and kind of exciting as abrasive as it could be but that said i think and i i think that's probably true but when i stand here now, I think I'd rather listen to Limp Bizkit uh, because I always appreciated the the pop side of Limp Bizkit. I always thought that their singles were basically relentlessly killer. I, I never, there was never a time when I didn't concede that. I think they were kind of a great pop band in their way. And there, there is that sense in which they were the, they were kind of the male cartoon set in opposition to the the female cartoon of the, the sort of hyper femininity of teen pop of the female teen pop stars there was this weird thing where they were both kind of like archetypal cartoons uh and it was this weird way they were set apart and that part and i do think there was something very there was something about their image that was hyper off-putting no doubt um because you know they were bro they were broy to an extreme you know and, and he was to a certain extent and and this is something I'm very curious about. Fred Durst was either playing a character or playing a version of himself when he was younger because he was actually like this savvy dude by this point in his life. He was already older. If you look at him when he was younger, and I've, I watched the, uh, some documentaries and stuff, and it's like he looked like Vanilla Ice, and he really was this like skateboarding hip-hop fan like who was a tattoo artist doing tattoos in the back of his trailer. That's all real. But then at some point he became actually the director of the videos, the de facto manager of the band, the uh, quote unquote visionary who was kind of like playing the part of this kid. On the Chocolate Starfish album, uh, there's this song, Living It Up, and it's so funny. It's like, first of all, that's the song that's, this is dedicated to you, Ben Stiller, you're my favorite motherfucker, which is one of the funniest song intros of, of all time. Dedicated to you, Ben Stiller. You are my favorite motherfucker. And then he talks about like he's that he's still tagging graffiti and he he has this is like an amazing lyrical passage. Mrs. Aguilera, come and get some. Oh no, which way did the dance for? It's on my stereo, pay me no mind. I've seen the fight club about 28 times, which is just delicious. 
marvelous. But so there was something ridiculous and something really off-putting. But, but again, Rob, maybe, could you take us back to kind of your perception at the time? Well, Limp Bizkit was different from these other bands because they wrote pop songs with choruses. And that really set them apart from everybody else in the genre. And uh, they wrote also very girly songs. If you went to see Limp Bizkit live in 98, 99, Y2K, half the audience was female. That was not the case if you went to see Korn. It was not the case if you went to see uh, Deftones or Fear Factory or whoever. Their strongest following was female and that, that really set them apart. Uh, and the sort of burlesque aspects of what they did, the sort of open self-parody, which was always key to what they did. I mean, you have to look at their band name and, and you know, that from the beginning is, is you know, a, a presentation of the male angst that they're presenting in a self-parodic comic way. As opposed to what the, the other bands of that ilk were doing at the time. That's partly why they had such a, uh, such a different audience than, than the other bands of, and also why they were bigger. But they were... Uh, they were a band that was always always self-mocking in a way that sort of set them apart from other bands. Yeah, and they played with celebrity a lot more too. I feel like that was kind of the thing, especially just thinking about Korn, for example, like thinking about like the band before like the early 2000s and, I, and when I started to kind of become aware and listen to Korn more, I remember they had like the Twisted Transistor video, which was very much like a TRL bait video where they had like Snoop Dogg in it and like all these rappers from that era kind of who are super popular, like playing corn in it. I feel like that sort of kind of playing with like that teen pop, very much like a TRL bait type of stuff was coming later for some of those bands where Limp Bizkit like loved being famous and like loved sort of being the antithesis to anything else happening on MTV. Yeah, how do you see their kind of their MTV presence, Rob? Because that was a big part of it. TRL, everything. Yeah, they were one of the key bands on TRL every afternoon. There'd be the uh, afternoon countdown with people calling in. And, you know, it was always the Corn Limp Biscuit fans versus the, the pop fans. And Woodstock 99, which is the subject of the documentary, and it's very focused on Limp Biscuit as the scapegoats for everything that happened at Woodstock 99. It's the, the filmmaker's thesis is basically uh, things went wrong because a bunch of morons had terrible taste in music and all this bad stuff happened because of that. And the level of Durst scapegoating is a little bit over the top. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. You know, I mentioned that Limp Bizkit stood as sort of the opposite archetype to the female pop stars at the time. Then, of course, the other thing is they they were sort of standing in, in opposition to the to the boy bands as well. Although they were they functioned in some ways as just another boy band, truly, right, Brittany? Yeah, I mean, Limp Bizkit is essentially a boy band, and also like having that sort of. Even when I saw Limp Bizkit, there was like a lot of women there. Like there was like a lot of other girls my age seeing Limp Bizkit live. And that was like five years ago. And so knowing that also in the late 90s, there's also just like a huge female fan base confirms my theory that Limp Bizkit is a boy band. But I mean, so many of those bands and so many of the fans of those bands were seen. And I think the 
fans more specifically were kind of looking at their bands as the antithesis of boy bands who they thought were more effeminate, who appealed to women, who were girly, who were like, you know, just like a polar opposite situation and closer to the girl artists, like the solo female artists, like Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Mandy Moore, like of that time. It was the dancing, you know, you think of like, and that was going beyond new metal. That was in pop punk too. That was like, Blink-182 doing a parody of the Backstreet Boys video in all the small things like that was something to be made fun of that the boy bands had these like big female fan bases and were doing choreography wearing matching outfits like it was just a totally different thing whereas like the rock bands of the time of any genre of any sort of micro genre at that moment were kind of presenting themselves a lot more casual a lot broier like jeans very like chill like sometimes half naked if you're Travis Barker kind of on drummy in the background it's just like they were t- a totally different thing um a different way of presenting that masculinity when uh, Limp Bizkit first broke through on a pop level and a national level it was with their cover of Faith by George Michael well, I guess it would be nice if I could touch your body I know not everybody Apparently they had been doing that live for quite a while, and they also were doing some other pop songs in that style. They were doing Straight Up by Paula Abdul, which I, I truly wish had also been released as a single, because that I, I can envision that perfectly. But when you listen to that, and your mention of pop punk reminded me of this. I mean, it, he's doing very much kind of like a Blink-182 thing in the singing parts and doing it very well. And then, you know, then kind of turning it into a thrashy punk thing. And, they, you know, they had they had a bunch of sort of hardcore punk influences and metal influences, obviously, as well. And that really works, the Faith cover. That that holds up really well. What do the both of you kind of have to say about that one? I love it. it it's a song that sounds like a Lip Biscuit song. They were a pop band. They wrote very girly pop songs with hooky choruses. That's something they did. And it's a song. It was always a highlight of the live show, and it was a highlight of the Woodstock '99 set, which naturally is is not mentioned in the in the anti Durst documentary. But uh, it's not since the Jinx that HBO has done such an anti Durst documentary. But Faith was also it was a song for if you saw Limp Bizkit show live at the time, that was also uh, the girls singing along sort of song, and a, a lot of their songs were you know like if if, if you went to see Limp Bizkit at that time. You saw just hundreds of thousands of girls with their fists in the air, you know, screaming the chorus of Nookie, and that that's what a Limp Bizkit show was. And their Faith cover, which is also a very clever, but also a very sort of sexually nuanced sort of 80s pop song. It's a song about not making out with someone that you, you know, feel a, a pull to making out with someone, but, uh, you know, you're, you're holding out for true love, and that that's kind of... On the surface, not a very Limp biscuit sentiment, but if we were in the mood to read their lyrics thematically, that's definitely a running theme through the Durstology. The vocals that you mentioned, like that was also like a big hallmark of so much of new metal of late 90s and early 2000s rock before we kind of get to like the butt rock sort of era. That sort of was the appeal again to like younger kids. I got really into System of a Down. I had no idea what they were singing about. I was like, what is going on with the prison system? But I was like, the way that they're singing this is hilarious. Like, it's so weird. It's so strange. Like, it's so new, so different than what I was hearing on, like, the teen pop records of that time. And Korn did that. Like, they all these bands had, like, really distinct ways of singing. 
and of performing these songs. It's like very like straight camp. Like it was just like so outside of the way that you would kind of envision those songs being performed. Um, And Fred Durst was very good at that where he combined, you know, the rapping elements, but he was sort of like doing it in a way that wasn't fully rapping. Like it was just like, he wasn't trying to be taken seriously. He wasn't trying to be Eminem with it, but he was like doing sort of like these weird vocal things constantly while he was performing them. The only thing I would dispute is that I think Fred Durst thought he was a very good rapper. Um, <laughs> like, like I don't, I think that aspect of, in fact, I'm, I'm positive that he thought, I mean, I guess not perhaps that he was good as good as Eminem, but I think he was, he truly thought that he could hang with the the, the best of hip hop. And, well, and sorry to, be fair, to Fred Durst, because <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, but I'm not sure of this claim, Brian. I, I'm I'm not totally sure. Like you listen to the really, you know, you listen to a song like Nookie, and the rapping in that song is very much is very much schlepping it up. It's it's a very you know self mocking song about being a chump, and that's you know that's all the rapping he's done is you know how, well, how sad okay, but... he is and what an idiot he is. And, <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, but no, I, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I want to give all the credit in the world to, to Limp Bizkit, but I, I, I do, this is a point, of, again, that I think I would differ, I mean, not to say there wasn't humor in what he was rapping about, but I truly th- think he, he was very proud of his lyrical skills, otherwise he wouldn't put himself up against Method Man, as he did in, in Together Now, uh, which, by the way, great song. Who could be the boss, look up to the cross, Spread in the land of the lost. Great song, another great single, but yet, could he actually stand up against Method Man? No. If he didn't think he was a great rapper, and I'm just going to jump around here, I I think my favorite Fred Durst moment is in the cover of What's Going On, which (laughs) was originally intended, I believe, to, it was this all-star cover for of what's going on, and I have other plans for this because it involves the 9-11 anniversary, but... There was this all-star cover of What's Going On that had Bono and Christina Aguilera and a million people. And I believe it was originally going to be like for, uh, you know, forgiveness for debt for Africa, I believe, was the original cause. And then 9-11 happened and it became, I don't mean to laugh, but it became like a the 9-11 anthem thing that they put on MTV like a thousand times a day. And uh, Fred <laughs> added a topical bit. And he's like, it, Fred was deeply affected by 9-11. After 9-11, he gave an interview and said that um, that he no longer wanted to beef with, you know, Scott Stapp from Creed anymore because 9-11 had made him realize, I'm really trying not to laugh when I say that, and 9-11 had made him realize that, you know, life is too short and you should give peace a chance with your new metal beefs and you should just be be cool about everything. So as part of this transformation, he he has this just this phenomenal rap on this what's going on where he's like you know the line that will always stand in my head is you got human beings human using human beings for a bomb i think that's my favorite fred durst moment in its sincerity and it's like sort of it it's it's true it's genuine perplexity over the uh, human condition i think that that that's his finest moment we might as well talk a bit about woodstock 99 Rob and I talked about this before. We were joking about that, that, you know, when we're brains in jars in 2099, we can talk about the 100th anniversary and have the same argument again. But basically, Rob and I were both in the crowd for this performance at Woodstock 99. And my sense was it was an impressive performance, but irresponsible. I do think that he, uh, you know, he said Alanis Morissette told you guys to mellow out, but I disagree with that. And uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And when he played Break Stuff, the crowd literally started tearing apart this tower. And 
And then Fred surfed on it and uh, kind of gave his tacit approval to that whole thing. And, you know, people did get hurt in that performance. I went to the, and I guess that's the thing, as I've said before, I went to the, the medical tent and interviewed a kid who was injured in, in that performance and talked to doctors who treated hundreds of people who were injured during that performance. And I think that while he did, Rob will say that he, he did, he pulled back and told the crowd not to hurt each other, which is true. But I think overall, it was not Fred's finest moment. I think he was going for this iconic moment, which he did achieve. And I think it's important to remember that in 94, someone like Green Day had had this sort of star-making iconic moment with the mud fighting and everything. And everyone was aware that they were on pay-per-view and it was being captured and they wanted to make the same kind of moment. And I'll, here's a, 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 what Fred said, and this is probably in the documentary, but I'm reading from my own story at the time. They asked us to ask you to mellow out. Too many people are getting hurt out there. Don't hurt anybody, but I don't think you should mellow out. <laughs> this is 1999, motherfucker. Stick those Birkenstocks up your ass. So I don't know. But Rob, again, your defense, go for it. I think your case is fair as well. <laughs> it's a shame you haven't seen the movie because there's this movie about this, this question, and they present the first third of the show. They don't show before or after the show. People were ripping the plywood off the the, the tower before the Limp Biscuit set. I guess since you can't respond to the movie, I'll, I'll just say just succinctly that that it was not Fred Durst's job to be the promoter of the show or to hire the security. It, it, it's shocking to see the movie and to see that the uh, cavalier attitude of the promoters and, and uh, especially with regard to security. There's oh, yeah. I mean, well, thing well, about to, the just, security. To, to take a step back, I mean, like just to be clear to everyone, I spent a year investigating the malfeasance of the promoters and I feel very strongly about that. And that's the I'm limiting my argument to just my feelings about Fred's behavior. I, but it doesn't mean he's responsible for the vandalism or or certainly anything else at the show. But to, just to be clear, and I, and I in no way believe me having spent a and that's the reason I can't even watch the documentaries because I, I feel so close to it and spent so much time with it. But yeah, no, I'm in no way excusing the promoters, but but go, go on. <laughs> no, but you're basically saying that like he should have done the promoter's job and that he should have hired a security team and trained a security team. These are things it was the promoter's job to do and they did not do. Fred Durst's job was to, you know, they were hired to do a Limp Bizkit show and they did a very typical Limp Bizkit show for that era for them. One of the strange things about the show is that Fred was kind of forced into uh, doing a certain bit of crowd control during his own show which was not typical for a Limp Bizkit show at that time, but he'd never done a show like this before where there was just no security at all. And so I think taking the, the pay-per-view presentation of his performance out of context, uh, it was a lot scarier before Limp Bizkit went on stage and it got a lot scarier after Limp Bizkit left the stage for me. Brian, you, you must remember the announcements that they were making before and after the Limp Bizkit set. They were threatening to cancel the entire night's live performance. And also they were announcing that somebody had been killed, electrocuted, taking the plywood off the towers. These were the adults who were in charge. And, and I would feel very strongly that this was this was their job to blow. And they definitely blew it. And Fred Durst was the guy on stage. So he's the guy who, you know, they present as the bad guy in the movie and the fall guy. But I would nonetheless suggest that, you know, Fred was doing the Limp Bizkit show that he was brought in to do. And that he responded to the... Uh, to the violence in this situation as lucidly as he could, given that, again, he had no way of knowing that he was being hired for a performance in a place where there was no security. Yeah, I think, you know, the thing with with festivals and having been to so many festivals, so many EDM festivals, like, right, you know, the, the Lollapaloozas, the Coachellas, like the, any sort of like smaller ones that pop up, like, 
you know, there is a certain level of terrifying, almost like this can end in extreme violence or, you know, whatever type of rowdiness that happens. I remember seeing like Rage Against the Machine at Lollapalooza and like the mosh pit there. I thought like I thought I was going to like be crushed in the the middle of it, like the way that it happened. But I think there is a difference in the security at the festival and the way that it's handled doing this on pavement in the middle of like a sweltering was it like july august of 99 like the weather that was happening um the lack of you know accessible water the extremeness of the bathroom situation like everything that was falling apart there you know is a bigger issue than i think blaming again artists on handling that like there was no you know i've never seen an artist try to handle the crowd at a festival (laughs) and you know i've never tried i've never seen an artist (laughs) actually actively try to um tell the crowd to stop harassing women, which happens at still at every single festival, because even if you have security kind of handling the violence that's happening, like they're not very good with that part. And there's no one sort of handling that. And I think that a lot of the artists there did the best that they could with like a really awful situation that was so out of their control and kind of, again, just like, I think the number of finger pointing that happened in the in the documentary was just like a real grievance of mine because it blamed like MTV, it blamed the end of grunge. Like I was like, what does it have to do with anything? Like it's like the blaming it all blamed this stuff. my so-called life. Yeah. Like, oh, like, grunge got commodified and then there was my so-called life. And yeah. Matt Dillon in singles, and that's why. I'm gonna go ahead and not watch this documentary. And I don't and I don't wanna w- there's gonna be more Woodstock documentaries, including one from our parent company, so you know, there'll be other opportunities to, uh, this debate will continue. Listen, I experienced what I experienced. My lived experience is my lived experience at at the show. And he was irresponsible. Uh, He was, but I can say, I think that what we need to do is maintain the nuance. I can say that Fred Durst is irresponsible without saying, and if the document, without blaming the entire festival on him, which I always, I've always been on record as saying was ridiculous. And again, I spent a lot of time realizing the tremendous flaws in the planning of that festival, which was the core issue, which also involved the way the lineup was and the fact that they had, you know, they would have aggressive band after aggressive band in the same, on the same stage in the same night, which just isn't, you know, it, it is, isn't advisable. You want to space that stuff out. So it doesn't, you know, the, there's, there's a million things that the promoters did wrong. And, you, you know, you, you can there's an old investigative series that I did that I, I can point to on my Twitter that backs that up. But I think you can maintain that. Well, also just saying, I don't think that was Fred's finest moment. I think that he he was reveling in it a little bit too much. He got on top of the plywood that was ripped from the tower and performed on it, which was, listen, is was that iconic? Absolutely. I just, I think it gave tacit permission to the chaos and vandalism. And I almost, as a performer, I understand the impulse that got him there. I totally understand it. I just don't, I think it just exemplified some of the negative aspects of what Limp Bizkit stood for. And also the sort of negative, frankly, the opportunism and almost greed for success that was a dark side of Fred Durst. I think that he would do, I think he made the calculation that a couple people that this iconic moment was worth a, a little bit of risk of chaos and danger. And I, I don't agree with that. I think that there, there are ways to be a benevolent. I've seen after the tragedy at Roskilde, if that's how you Roskilde, Roskilde, that uh, Pearl Jam endured, I saw Eddie Vedder so caringly manage crowds that were like getting rough and like 
handle it in just the most empathetic and sort of vaguely terrified way. And I just prefer that approach. And I have seen I have seen bands just being like chill out the crowd rather than amp up the crowd with sort of a in an almost Trumpian way like don't hurt anyone, but go fucking crazy. Like, no, I don't I don't emphasize the don't hurt anyone. But anyway, again, I think we do fall into and I, th- I think actually this leads to a broader point. I, I do think we we get into this thing where everyone's either a villain or a hero. And I think social media discourse does play into that. And it's part of this thing, like anything Dolly Parton does now, this business of this this supposed that she invests in the black community. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't, but there's like, no, but people like are overlauding someone who they see as a perfect hero and they're gonna get disappointed. Or whereas, you know, and so then the debate becomes on social media, is Fred Durst a total villain or total hero? And then people are like, well, he spoke up against the Iraq war. He's a total hero. He did this at Woodstock 90, he's a total villain. I think let's bring some nuance into it. And I think that Britney's point at the beginning is perfect. Like, no, actually neither villain or hero, just hilarious in some way, just a a very fun cultural artifact ultimately. And I think even just like looking at, you know, present day Fred Durst, even the Fred Durst of the last, you know, five years is what makes it so funny to me because literally Limp Bizkit just exists, right? Like I, I enjoy listening to Limp Bizkit. Will I vibe to Limp Bizkit on any off day? Of course. Like I love, I love to put on Roland and enjoy it and go about my day, you know? But like, I think with most artists, it's a losing game to act like they are somehow going to be a hero or villain because it's way more complicated than that. There are, of course, there are real artists who are, actual villains who have enacted like actual sort of severe violence and trauma against people. And I think it's, you know, you can go ahead and villainize them in the way that deserves for the level of crimes that they have done. But like, yes, I think Mar- you know, Marilyn Manson, Marilyn Manson, real villain. villain. Yeah. Yes. That's a different, that's a different kind of story, but looking at an artist for their music as sort of a hero villain for creating the music that they created is just a losing game. Limp Bizkit, enjoyable. Fred Durst of the last five years, literally just chilling. Like he, he just has had his nice little jazz club. He was posting vintage cars on Instagram for years straight. Like literally no other content. Does weird one-off tours with the band that never makes sense to me. They're never promoting really anything. Like they just kind of show up at things like Lollapalooza, which I was just like, why? But sure. And you know, they, he's directs his little eHarmony ads in his movies and he goes on about his day, like Fred Durst, completely unbothered by all this because he cashed a check 20 years ago and has moved on to do other weird things that don't make sense to me. And I think just kind of like putting him in this stuff, like he's just kind of given up most of that. He does nostalgia tours. Like he kind of just, again, will th- play Nookie and Roland whenever a check comes his way and just does his little his little jazz club and his little directing gigs and moves on with his life. So I don't know. He's just, I'm just like, the, the arguments are kind of futile because it's just like, what are we arguing about? Music from 20 years ago that was just fun? Like, it was fun. It's okay. Yes, that, it, that is what we were doing. On, <laughs> that is what we were doing for a full hour today. Yes. That is, no, I mean, like, more so the people online who <laughs> no, sort of, know, like, know, take it so seriously and who are just, like, <laughs> like so offended that people can like Limp Bizkit. And it's like, it's just a band. Like, it's okay. I like a I lot just, of things. I, I prefer if you were hitting this, like, existential despair about our very project. Like, like, what, what are, are we, we doing, doing here? We sit here. We talk about music. It's just music. I mean, what is the, even the we point? talk about music um, from decades ago. You know, it's I like, just... It's, I, 
No, but I, I think like to... the ser- the severity of the arguments online are the things yes, that I just find absolutely. so confounding because I'm just like, have you ever enjoyed a song? <laughs> Again, the thing that draws me to the music that I love and the music and what I think draws a lot of people to music that I love is that you don't necessarily have to find meaning in in every song. You know, some songs just exist to keep on rolling baby like that's it like there's no deeper meaning to me in any Limp Bizkit song I have never listened to my way or break stuff and been like wow I'm angry all of a sudden like sometimes I just listen to break stuff and I'm just sitting you know and like it's just I don't think that there's any there's not a lot of meaning to find in a lot of these songs and again there were a lot of new metal bands that put a lot of meaning into their music and wanted to express political beliefs express severe trauma and that exists and i think it's there are other and as in every genre there are bands that just kind of create music that's just meant to be silly you know you look at like kind of like early blink One A Two and green day like a lot of those songs were just meant to be silly and of course like there are other more meaningful songs that these bands want to release that come out in their careers but it's okay some things just don't have meaning rob Let's go back into the moment a little bit more. And again, at the time, you know, I always appreciated their pop hit making. But in general, I mean, critics despise them. Uh, you know, I, I, not to super generalize, but I think that's true. What did they symbolize in the eyes of the critics who didn't like them? And how do you see that, Rob? Gosh, I, I don't know what they symbolized to people who didn't like them. Wow. The, I, I'm not, do you mean at the time or now? Yeah, 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 at the time. Well, like, I think at the time, too, a lot of people, they were seen as more juvenile than the the more they were. They were kind of like seen as a, a more juvenile version of early 90s rock that had been transcended at that point. And, and it was seen, you know, like punk rock in the 70s as something that, you know, was taking the sophisticated Rococo and nuance of 90s rock and taking it back to just, you know, air guitar buzz and blast. And you know, people are always getting offended. Who, whoever's doing that at the moment, you know, it's 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 not specific to that moment in time. But I, I think, to a large extent, it was the '90s rock audience. Uh, I think critics, for the most part, didn't know they existed. I think it's it's that the audience looked down on Limp Bizkit to an extent because they saw them as juvenile. It was the music that their little brothers and sisters listened to. That I mean, that's that's separately true. Yeah, it, it was the Gen X people who had embraced the alternative rock and indie rock and grunge of the early 90s definitely were not feeling Limp Bizkit at all. But their younger, bro- their younger brothers and sisters were absolutely. And, and that was, there was a mini generational divide already happening there. They were kind of seen as this, as this dumb kid stuff. And actually, I think probably the, for people who were not, who set themselves up as opposition in opposition to pop as silly as that is, they did see them, they recognized their pop qualities and they just saw them as like the as the same way that we're kind of calling them a, a boy band as a compliment. There were people who perceived that about them and, and didn't like them for that reason. But that's but, what they aspired to. You know, Wes Borland, he always said Limp Bizkit is a dumb pop band. That was his line that he trotted out in, in interviews. And he was really into complex stuff like the Aphex Twin. He wanted to do avant-garde composition. That was his thing because he's Wes Borland in enigmatic guitar a savant. And his thing was always, you know, Limp Bizkit, you know, this is the band we're in. This is a dumb pop band. We write our songs in the dumb pop song format. And that to him was their genre description. And I, I think that that's, you know, that's what was great about them. 
Yeah, I was going to talk about West Borland because to take a step back, West Borland was the guy in the band who kind of didn't want to be in the band. He 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 was the one. <laughs> it's amazing to have a band where one guy is doing elaborate makeup effects on himself and is in a just in a whole different world. He he was the musical <laughs> sophisticate of the band. He was he was the one member. There'd be like the kind of thing and be like, man, I, I fucking hate Limp Bizkit, man. But that, you know, that Wes Borland, he's got something, you know, like there'd be that kind of thing because he was the guy that people kind of like, quote unquote, respected. And that's also hilariously to a, a ridiculous degree what he set himself up to be, what he wanted to be. Like he, he wanted to be the one who was the interesting, cool, arty one in the in this shitty band. That was like his thing. What What are some other examples Maybe put them in context. What are some other examples of the person who didn't really want to be in the band, who was like clearly in some other band while they were in the band? Frashanti was like that a little bit, very much so. That's the first example that comes to mind. But what are some other examples of that phenomenon? I was just going to say, speaking to the um, <laughs> the like makeup and the way that he dresses on stage, like him next to Fred Durst on any stage always reminds me of that photo of like Ed Sheeran and Beyonce where people are like, <laughs> like a guy has to do like way less than a woman on stage. It's like Fred Durst is doing way less than Wes Borland is, has ever done on stage. <laughs> so it always reminds me of that because it's just like they look like just they showed up to two different parties and don't know which one they're at. <laughs> but yeah, Fushante though for sure, like very arty in comparison to what the vision of Red Hot Chili Peppers were for part of the nineties. But also a huge Red Hot Chili Peppers fanboy before he joined, so it's like he kinda of, he knew what he was getting into. It's always the guitarist who hates the lead singer. It's like George Harrison in the Beatles, it's you know, it's Graham Coxon in Blur. It's always the shy, intense guitar player who envies the frivolity of the lead singer. It's Eddie Van Halen versus David Lee Roth in every band. Ryan Ross in Panic at the Disco. Perfect <laughs> example. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> Pretty odd, which uh, an album that I really enjoy, but like is so just like moved completely beyond the theatrical Baroque emo of the first album. And then they're like, actually, we were flannel and we were making our own rubber soul now and then left the band. The George Harrison comparison is hilarious. Yeah, just just sort of they're like, fine. Uh, uh, if if I must accept the the millions of dollars and fame, I, I I will. But my other my real interests are are, are elsewhere. Uh, you know, there's I could be doing much more important things than this. There is a little bit of that. I think that's probably the first time the West Borland and George Harrison have been compared, <laughs> but but very apt. This is another story that I guess I'll be telling when I'm a brain in the in a jar. Another '90s heyday story, but I was present for the filming of the Nookie video. I covered that, and uh, it was in Long Island City. And I must say, in contrast to my other sort of real life experience with Fred Durst. I found that extremely impressive, actually, because he was directing it, and he really knew what he was doing. And it was actually really fascinating to watch him go between Fred Durst, the director, and Fred Durst, the character, in the video, because there really was a difference. And that's what brings me back to the thing at the beginning, is that he at some point switched over to, to embodying this version of himself. And I think that's who he really, I think he's, he wanted to transition into being like a big feature film director. It didn't quite work, but he did direct some movies. And so 
there's a duality to Fred Durst. There's a, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on there. And they, they also staged a real mosh pit with the, with some kids that they had somehow obtained, uh, I think by advertising on the radio or something. I think that's how I'd heard about it to cover it. These kids really hit it hard in the fake mosh pit. I remember that too. Uh, it was a preview of Woodstock 99. Bernie, what is your, your favorite Limp Bizkit moment of all time, whether musically or, or uh, video or whatever? I will always love Roland. It's one of my favorite karaoke songs, and it's just a, a fun song. I love that one forever. I love the Behind Blue Eyes cover. You know. Oh my God! I'm gonna stop you right there. Why do you love that? <laughs> I just think it's good. I don't know. I, that was the first it's time I heard that dire. song. <laughs> <laughs> so we should have gotten to this earlier. It is hideous. It's, it's so. Why is there a speaking spell on it? I don't know. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I've asked very few questions of Fred Durst in my lifetime, and I'm not going to start now. So, <laughs> Wow, I, I love that. I love that you love that. I mean, it's hilarious, but to me, that's like, that is the, the side, it's another side, it's this like self, and I would dare to say this sort of white male of the era self-pitying thing yeah. that I find so like gross. Uh, and that that is- That's the, why I think it's so y- fitting too. Like, it's like you go from like my way and break stuff to that song. Like, it's like, Right. That is exactly what Fred Durst is thinking. <laughs> it's like it's, nobody knows know, what it's like to be Fred Durst, and he's like, "This nothing can channel this more than this song." But, but yeah, "Behind Blue Eyes" was was of course written uh, as part of originally part of the Lifehouse rock opera, never finished, uh, and it was like <laughs> from the point of view of the villain of this Lifehouse rock opera. Perhaps the Who will finish this, uh, you know, sometime soon. But also fitting for the, the sake of all of the arguments online. Who Fred a, Durst? You'll absolutely. never know what it's like because he didn't speak in the documentary. So we'll we'll never know how he feels about Woodstock '99 today. So much to unpack in the Behind Blue Eyes cover. There's, uh, <laughs> it's a combination of that self awareness and lack of self awareness. Because on the one yeah. hand, he definitely chose it because you know he's he was seen as the bad man. It, because this this debate, I mean, he he got a lot of a, a program at the time for Woodstock and other stuff like he was kind of seen as a villain he also did I mean by the way some things that no one could defend now you know like a bunch of sexist stuff and and uh it's so weird that we're you know in that everyone is in a mode of defending Britney I mean we should mention that he did something really shitty to Britney much worse than what Justin Timberlake did arguably I mean he he totally like kissed and told in a really gross way about Britney and that's you know as long as we're not forgiving sins against Britney, we should not forgive that. That was that was gross, and it was part of that like swaggering alpha male bullshit thing. And that there's there's no way of really excusing that. But again, let's not since he's not Marilyn Manson, he's not one of these people who has done monstrous things. So again, let's keep him between hero and villain. Let's keep him as as flawed human being. But Britney thing bad, and a bunch of other stuff that was was not super great. But anyway, he he did know that he was perceived as a villain and that's why he he did the uh, the behind blue eyes. He also did their own he must have really liked the who cuz he did my generation was like sort of a a reimagining of their own my generation with some nods to the who's version. Even though he was actually, you know, in in the same way he he was casting himself as an honorary teenager even though he was much older than that. Uh, and we should it's mention- his empty glass. Yes. <laughs> The sea refuses no river, Brian. If Pete Townsend had no problem with him doing Behind Blue Eyes, I don't know why you do. Honestly, Pete Townsend, between being cool about Limp Bizkit during Behind Blue Eyes and being cool about One Direction doing, you know, Baba O'Reilly and Best Song Ever, Pete Townsend 
cool guy in terms of letting other people do horrible things to his music. I love that man, and that's why. But, but I, Behind Blue Eyes, I, I, is ma- in many ways, I think we can all agree, the definitive version. <laughs> the way it was meant to be sung, yeah, exactly, and exactly. like us. <laughs> it's, it's like he puts his who's next, his who by numbers, and his empty glass all in one performance. <laughs> you're, hurt, you're hurting my soul. Oh. And, but, but, why don't we have Pete Townsend's version yet of chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water? The, the, the only kind thing... of rock opera that, that he helped invent. Brian is now uh, the West Borland to me and Rob being Fred Durst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, besides the 9-11 song, what, what really stands out for me in, in just a moment, like an irksome moment for me, is there was a song by Stained uh, called Outside. And yes. Yes. And one cannot over... I, I worked at MTV at the time. So, you know, when you work at MTV, MTV is on all day, which... Is the kind of thing, it's like when you're younger, your dream is like, I'll work at MTV and like MTV will be on all day. And it was like, it wasn't a dream by the time I was there. Um, but this song Outside by Stain in this live version with Fred Durst was, I swear to God, somehow played 60 times an hour. It's like ridiculousness now on MTV. It was I all was they at played home at the time. watching it every hour. Yeah. I do and, remember. And, and so <laughs> there's, there's this moment during this, you know, this supposedly emotive, hideous acoustic ballad, when Fred Durst looks out at the crowd and goes, I'm feeling those lighters. And for some reason, I just hate that so much. I love slash hate that so much. It, it gives me almost like that, like a nails on a chalkboard thing. Like just because <laughs> it's just, it, I don't know what it, what it is. It's just something about Fred Durst in that moment. Like that's everything to me. I'm feeling those lighters. I, I don't know. It's, there we go. it's probably just because it was, locked in the when you hear someone say that every hour on the hour for two weeks it's some it's like some kind of uh, guantanamo bay situation it, it's it's so that that's it so being waterboarded by fred durst and so fred we, we two whose name we two are feeling those lighters <laughs> rob final thoughts on uh, fred durst and limp biscuit i'll never have final thoughts i will only have ongoing thoughts as he keeps rolling and we keep rolling we, Brittany, you haven't weighed on on, on the haircut pro or con I hair. hair. That's a freaking wig, Rob. I want to yeah. believe it's hair. I believe. I believe. That's not I also, possible. It is. It's a commentary on how old he is now, especially in comparison to the rest of it. Just felt like such an appropriate way for him. Like, he didn't pull out the Fred Durst drag. You know, we've seen it every Halloween for the last 20 years. Like, he didn't pull that out. He was like, okay, I can't wear a red hat anymore. He already, that was ruined for him, which I will, the many things unforgivable but like he was just like i'm just gonna dress like a full just like comical 70s dad on a road trip and that is how i'm gonna perform the songs i performed in 1999 to 2001 like he was just and it felt like very appropriate for him to do that at Lollapalooza, where every act but most of the acts were and most of the acts and audience were born after woodstock 99 so <laughs> Brittany brings up a point that I did want you to grapple with, Rob, because you had the interesting point in your essay about ZZ Top and the late Dusty Hill, and uh, RIP to Dusty Hill, by the way. You said that what ZZ Top were doing was a form of drag. And to what extent was that also true about what Durst was portraying? Well, yeah, well, that's that's a whole other topic in itself. But, like, yeah, Durst was 
absolutely the new metal drag queen. And you know, if if you've ever seen uh, our friend and colleague Susie Esposito rock the Fred Durst karaoke with her red baseball cap, like that's that's a that's a serious Durst read. And and yeah. that is something. And and again, like if you saw them live at the time, it was not like being in most rock shows because you were in a room that was half women who were screaming all these these uh, uh, rage-filled lyrics and. And so there was definitely like that element of drag that they were very conscious of and, and Borland as well with his, you know, really googly wizard getup. I love that. And in, yeah. in many ways, like Fred was doing kabuki the same way that Wes Borland was in a, in a very uh, gender kabuki kind of way. It was also such like a, a thing of the time. Like, I feel like that was one of the things where in the same way, way where a few years later we get like the Avril Lavigne necktie. It was just like <laughs> such a thing that people did, like the backwards hat and like just like the full, you know, like the white T-shirt. Like that was like you can I, it's just like so many guys would just do that constantly. And like it was such a clear sign, like, OK, like I know exactly who you are, what kind of music you listen to. It was like the same thing with like Eminem fans. You just like knew right away. You're like, okay, I know all your favorite artists immediately, like all the CDs in your like in your Walkman rotation, just by looking at you. Um, and, and it's like an outfit that's still recognizable today. I think for a certain period of time, like that's like such like a thing that you kind of look at. And for people who were aware of that and knew that, like that's such a a moment for for everyone. Well, the certainly the red baseball cap thing is disturbing, and it's not his fault necessarily but it is interesting on how necessarily you're you're about to say that he's responsible for mega hats no 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 well i did i did say before in my essay that but was saying that not him but there there certainly was a pre-echo of some of the mega stuff in those like pointlessly angry white kids at woodstock i think there is something to that because i guarantee you some of those kids did go on to become trump voters who are angry and they don't know what they're angry at there also were there also were plenty of reasons to be genuinely angry at Woodstock just at the what you've been subjected to. And there's a you know, it's it's like anything else. It's, it's super complicated. And I think there were, you know, when they were spray painting no water, break it. That explains a lot. On the other hand, that's the thing. So there's it's, it's complicated. But I don't think you can blame him for the iconography <laughs> of the red baseball cap. No, 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 I'm, I'm not. But it is it's when he was looking for something that was both iconographic and would also cover up his balding. He he found out because that was that was really what that was all about. That when when someone doesn't that that was why he did take the hat off is because he he was a guy trying to be on MTV appealing to kids who was losing his hair, which is sucks. So he so he's he Burt Reynolds. So he found, he, another he, another win in his column. Burt Reynolds slash slash the edge slash you know there's, there's, there's a long there's a long history of of prominent headgear uh, serving as a disguise. In, in you can do the Brett Michaels but, cowboy hat and hairpiece combo. You know, that, just another ironic all, outfit. Yes, just the modular, the most, uh, the most efficient, uh, the most efficient thing of all time. I admire that. But you know, I, I just think it's more like he somehow stumbled upon the that there was some weird kind of scary power in a white dude yelling in a red baseball hat. That there was something that, the, uh, but there's the, 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 the red was, baseball was hat. Some, you can't you can't win that one. Yeah, the red baseball I think also. Hat, it, lots of people there, wear there red this, baseball. There was something. There's something just. That, but there was. There was something about it. It was like the same way that the, the color like gets a bolt to charge. There was something. He just stumbled on something, 
powerful in it. I, I, I just, I don't, it, this is more on the level of semiotics or something. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, you know, it's a hat. It's, it was something that he wore. It was You're saying drag. somebody's a hat, it's like, just a hat. He also didn't, yeah. he wasn't even wearing a red hat in the, at Woodstock 99. That's, That's true. I, like, I don't, Rob, Rob and I not, talked about that last time. It's, it's so weird. It's just like a video. Yeah, it was like the video, like kind of like press images that, but he just, he wore a variety of hats. And that's the other thing that I also just like want to broadly state with the Woodstock 99 doc, because I had so many issues with it, but just like mobs of angry, angry white men existed long before Woodstock 99, existed long before New Metal. That was the other thing, like even just like the grunge conversation in there. A lot of those same fans loved Nirvana. They loved Alice in Chains. That wasn't, of course, the core demographic that those bands wanted to reach. And a lot of, and Kurt Cobain had to write multiple open letters being like, if you are one of these like frat bros, please stop listening to my music. I don't like you. But they were still at those shows. They still liked the bands. That doesn't stop them from being attracted to the same anger that grunge bands express, that bands before grunge express, that punk bands express, that my generation by the who express. Like, yes. of course, it evolves over time. It becomes angrier and more violent and becomes like worse over the decades. But to look at that as the impetus for things as they progress to today, I think is a dangerous notion that um, yeah, fair is enough. not. I, yeah. I think your, your point is really interesting. I think one thing that's different about, you know, Pearl and Nirvana versus like the the new metal guys is that you would have Kurt being like, you know, if you're homophobic, if you're yeah. racist, I don't want you. Whereas you do feel like there was much more of a feeling within some of new metal that like everybody's welcome, you know, right. which included, which there was like there much was, stricter there was, politics behind the artists in, yeah, in there, there is a validity and to that. various other genres of even like in pop punk again, like, which is, a, I keep bringing up just because it's ha- happening in tandem with new metal, but like the politics were like much more openly leftist and liberal and like outside of what new metal where they were sort of like, uh, most, uh, you know, Limp get very apolitical and like for a lot of other metal bands at the time, just either had those kind of strict politics or just like didn't care. It's kind of a weird split between them, but still attracts the same crowds just because it's yes. loud. And I'll point out one other thing is, is just that it is also true that there really was backstage in a lot of these for the grunge bands and in the grunge era, there was mistreatment of women was really kind of seen as like uncool and frowned upon and if you were like the gross guy trying to have groupies at like a Pearl Jam show they'd be like this is gross like this is not like that was that was their vibe whereas as like really gross backstage videos of like Kid Rock and etc show that the the ethos flipped into more of like an 80s groupie right. thing, which is really unfortunate in new metal. So there, there are as much as we want to like revive. But that's separate to what you're saying. I'm just saying that there were there yeah. were there were genuinely dark undercurrents. That the came acceptance with of those things stuff. ebbed and flowed, of course, with like artists, different politics. But I think at the same time, it's like audiences are going to be attracted to whatever music and they're going to place their own meaning of anger of, you know, actual sort of like this. Is, these are my politics onto it. And that's a whole other thing <laughs> that's a whole other thing that's yeah but here in the safety should of 2021 also be noted that fred yeah. was very explicit about his left-wing politics and the unquestionable mm-hmm. truth part one still waiting on part two i know we will get it i believe but you know now's the time yeah exactly he was a real left-wing firebrand it's his life house he will finish it someday Brittany and rob thank you for uh, an enlightening discussion as always This has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. 
We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. That's always appreciated, really. But as always, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.